Welcome to All About Blockchain. We're showcasing the work of scholars funded by the University Blockchain Research Initiative, Ubri. Ripple founded Ubri in 2018 with a 50 million philanthropic gift towards global university partners. Our goal is to accelerate understanding, innovation, and adoption in blockchain. And to find out more about this, you can go to ubri.ripple.com. This show gives a voice to those academics developing real world use cases that solve for today's challenges. My name's Lauren Weymouth, and I'll be your host. Hello, everyone. I'm Lauren Weymouth, your host of All About Blockchain, and this is our final episode of Season 1. In an earlier episode, we heard researcher Vishwa Patil discuss blockchain as a replacement system for records and ownership and property rights. Today, we'll learn how this may be useful to real estate. Here with us today is Simon Siv, who has given a great deal of thought to what is needed to ensure future scalability. Simon's research evaluates whether we can reduce costs and create additional secondary market liquidity next to traditional real estate capital markets. Now, tokenization of securities is still an area that is early in development and adoption. So he helps us think about impediments of widespread adoption and frameworks needed to integrate various protocols for future use. Simon is a master's student in computational finance in the computer science department at University College London. He's educated in law and finance and has four plus years as a financial analyst and has taught finance at his undergraduate alma mater. Simon, welcome to All About Blockchain. Hi, Lauren. How are you doing? Good. Simon, you're recording this from London today? I am indeed. I'm recording it from Hackney in London. So, Simon, we're discussing hurdles and benefits of real estate tokenization. What has you interested in improving the real estate marketplace? Well, I think what's kind of interesting about this whole space is that it's uh, from an outsider's perspective it's it's really hard to know whether it's a mirage whether there's some sort of reality to this real ledger technology blockchain and sort of you know the real world and you know someone who's been working in finance you know i witnessed the uh, ico craze in 2017-2018 um trying to figure out whether or not this sort of thing was real. And as an outsider, I I really couldn't figure it out. And then, you know, studying computer science and looking at sort of modern problems with traditional capital markets and thinking about blockchain, you know, um, why not go and research the problem, which is very well known by people within finance of real estate being a big illiquid asset class and whether or not this technology can sort of deliver on these fronts that I've seen. So, I mean, it was a very, I guess, very obvious question to sort of look at or use case. You know, people talk about real estate and it's being very illiquid and people talk about blockchain being able to free up capital. And so my natural instinct was to see, does, does it add up? So I love asking our guests, when did you start learning about blockchain and what did you do to learn more? I learned about blockchain pretty much like everybody else, you know, watching a whole lot of people make a whole lot of money um, of things that I didn't understand, which were these cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and all of these sort of things. And, you know, as kind of a risk averse person, I mean, I just being honest, thought it was too rich for my blood. And then I think I think when I started to really sort of think about blockchain was when I started doing computational finance. And there was an opportunity to really learn about this technology in a very rigorous, critically uh, critical setting. And that was, you know, at University College London. So I've been kind of looking at it about sort of intently and very sort of living in the weeds of it for about sort of six months, even though I had done the basic things of trying to read white papers and read articles about it. And when did the light bulb go off? I mean, I can hear you. And I think we've all gone through this. I mean, I've, I've done the same thing you've done, read all the, read a lot of white papers, scoured the 
the internet, tried to attend webinars and conferences, bring it up at cocktail parties. You know, when did you feel that it started to really gel and you started to really understand it? Yeah. I mean, I'm a natural skeptic. I, I am kind of a bit wired to not want to believe a lot of the time and think that if it's so magical, we would have figured it out by then. But I mean, there's sort of two examples that I think of when the penny dropped and it was really about thinking about the generations of blockchain. And so I thought about, you know, this idea of a fiat currency. What does that mean? And it really means that the value of this currency, the use value is attached to sort of not trust. And I thought, you know, being someone who studied economics, a lot of emphasis is placed on when we move from or when the United States moved from a commodity currency to a fiat currency where the exchangeability to a precious metal was removed. We're trying to say, let us remove this use value from one centralized authority or such as the Federal Reserve, you know, and implicitly the U.S. government. And let's sort of move it to a mathematical protocol in which trust in what everyone has is distributed. So that that sort of made sense when I started thinking about this idea of rights and ownerships and whether or not they can move to something which is decentralized. And the best example, when I thought about the kilogram. So when I first moved to the U.K., I remember sort of being on the train one day and listening to the New York's Daily podcast. And they were talking about the changing the definition of the kilogram. And I thought this was an incredibly weird concept. You know, my understanding of a kilogram is it's a measurement, right? Like, why would we need to change the definition? I know what a kilogram is. You know what a kilogram is. They, they talked about how it was actually tied to some sort of physical uranium rod, which was located in Paris. That they were going to change this definition from birth reference to something physical to a universal formula, something relying on something called Planck's constant. And I thought, oh, I see what's going on here. We're decentralizing the definition of something that we all need and all use, which is actually something which is physical. For example, like my ownership of a house. The house itself is physical, but my ownership, the right to possess and the right to abode there, that in and of itself is not actually physical. So I kind of started to tie these ideas together is that if you can redefine the kilogram and this for my whole existence, the kilogram was related to some platinum or radium rod in Paris. And now it's got to do with a universal formula, which will stand up across time and space. Why can we not do it with proprietary rights? I finally understood what this blockchain, what distributed ledger technology was about. It's, it's far more simple than people make it out to be. It's democratizing the record keeping system in, in one way or another. I felt very late to the party, but I kind of understood the enthusiasm, even though I still have sort of considerations of my own that I want to keep thinking about. I love that your light bulb story is about changing the definition of the kilogram. That's pretty awesome. Can you take us through how you'd explain real estate tokenization? It's a method of converting rights to an asset into a digital form. So essentially, if you think about anything you sort of own, let's take the deed to your house, right? Now, that deed and where it's located, the actual physical deed and the the record by the registrar at your sort of local land record keeping the government, that is the the record of ownership. And that's very still much quite paper-based. I mean, you can log on to online and, you know, in some countries it's quite more developed. You can search who has the, the title to this property. And the idea is let us take that right, right, and let us create some sort of online smart contract which records its ownership, who has right to it, and let's 
create sort of digital assets. The real estate aspect about it is, is mostly about a use case. It's about saying, can we say that the equivalent of you having some sort of token in a wallet being equivalent to or akin to the registrar saying, yes, you own that land. It's quite simple. It's just sort of trying to create an, uh, a digital version of a real world asset. And it does not necessarily have to be specific to blockchain. Blockchain is definitely the place where we get the other benefits such as decentralization, immutability, lack of central control. But it is literally the idea of just taking an asset and then creating a digital point of it. So what's the value proposition of having digital assets represent real world property? Well, there's, there's a couple of things to think about. So, for example, real estate is a, a massive asset class and there's, it, it's got some very interesting features attached to it, just empirically. So generally speaking, your average retail investor is actually under exposed to it. If you look at their, I guess in the States, their 401k or in Australia, the superannuation or here, the pension in the United Kingdom, the pension, you'll see that the allocation of people's retirements or their wealth to this asset class is, is sort of less than it should be if you were to create a portfolio which sort of optimize your returns. And you think, why is that? Well, real estate itself is quite a lumpy asset. It's hard sort of to get access to, you know, cost to entry. And so the idea is if people should have more real estate and there are sort of structural uh, impediments to people getting access to it, can blockchain come in and create a system which sort of allows fractionalization of big assets on the one hand and B allows sort of the trading of these assets by people who ordinarily wouldn't have access to them. So can you talk to us a little bit about how this can increase liquidity? So when people talk about investing in real estate, that can mean a couple of different things. You could sort of buy um, a property outright by buying the equity in a property and purchasing it, or you could invest in, you could purchase the debt, which is used to finance a property. At the moment, if you are a uh, sort of a mum and dad investor, the only sort of access that you have is by buying real estate investment trusts, which are listed on exchanges. In that aspect, you don't have any sort of agency over what is actually being invested in, what the underlying property is that's given up to a portfolio manager who sort of manages that. The idea that blockchain tries to say is that a lot of the reasons why you can't have that is because the sort of the upfront costs of investing in, in property is, is so high. So the idea is that if we can have a technology which allows for fractionalization, we can then have tiny units in people's homes or tiny units in people's properties. This is all very sort of technical on how it can exist. The interesting and the kind of the sad thing is, is people have been trying to do this for a long time. They've been trying to do that with traditional investment vehicles at the moment. They have set up companies for the purpose of buying one specific property and then divided that company into thousands of shares and achieving fractionalization. The problem is, is that properties are like very specific. You know, it's not like just buying something which is quite fungible. You, there's a lot of information asymmetry that exists within investing in the space. And the idea is that blockchain will be a source of record keeping will allow essentially everybody to have you know kind of the same information or be able to get access to the information and then it'll facilitate fractionalization it just seems right for the picking but essentially how it is done is still very much something that people are still grappling with and that is mainly to do with regulatory and legal compliance issues. Many of the use cases we hear about depend on regulatory policy and governance of this. What I'm hearing is that this opens the market to less advantaged people. If you can, you know, buy fractionalized properties, then it almost opens as a consumer benefit. 
That is a that is a, a benefit often spruiked, but as you sort of just alluded to, these there are these massive sort of regulatory and legal hurdles. So, for example, in the states, there's been a couple of sort of ventures that people have tried to set out to do, which is tokenizing real estate properties. So in Aspen, there was a ski resort which they they successfully managed to create a tokenized version of. And then in Manhattan, there's like some condominiums which were also done to. The problem with it is. The way that the law is currently structured, the retail investors and mom and dad's investors are already iced out. There are regulations which mean that only accredited investors, and these are people with, you know, either large institutional investors or sophisticated investors with high net wealth, are the only people who can, can get access to this. So although the technology can kind of is able to deliver this until the laws change around who can and who can't invest in these kind of what are known as regulation 506D private placements. In the United States, it does not look like blockchain anytime soon is going to create some liquidity for retail investors. So we do need the laws to open up for more entrepreneurship in this sector. What are, what are some other legal hurdles? It's not all bad news. Excess liquidity or increased liquidity in real estate does not necessarily mean only making it so that people with a little bit of savings can go and get access to their asset costs. It kind of also means, and this is kind of, uh, depending on how you look at it, a bit sad, is it means that people who currently have access to real estate can get even more access to it. So for example, you know, this could be something which could work in a closed environment with a whole lot of sort of private equity funds working together and having a tokenized property, which is sort of iced out from everybody else, but large institutional investors could sort of streamline their middle office and their back office to make sure that everyone's sort of online or, you know, blockchain can really serve a purpose for institutional investors. That is the other thing is people have to realize is that until these laws change, which make it easier for sort of mums and dads and retail investors to get access to these sort of investments, all of the innovation is going to be captured by the people who are already able to benefit from investing in these asset classes. So I think that's kind of important to realize is that a lot of this low-lying fruit is going to be grabbed up by institutional investors. You've researched and analyzed over 20 commercial tokenization protocols. How many companies are out there trying this? You, you named some projects in the U.S., Aspen and Manhattan, but how many overall companies are at this game right now? I found 30 different companies listed doing this. And that was sort of where I started, was looking at this list of 30 companies saying they're doing it. People are actually delivering on projects and that. I think that number is quite a bit smaller. And this was global, all around the world, this list that you were choosing companies from? I covered four continents and eight jurisdictions. There was people in Taiwan, in Australia. Switzerland has a lot of people trying to do this. The United States as well, uh, Germany. Uh, Liechtenstein has uh, a couple of players. And I mean, that's really due to the sort of the favorable or the proactive government there who are really sort of trying to craft laws to sort of foster this space and seeing how far this technology can go. I was going to ask, did you see more innovation, more companies trying to do this in jurisdictions that had more favorable uh, governance? You definitely see that. So, for example, you could see that in the Switzerland, you know, where the financial authority is sort of being proactive in delivering publications and guidance on what it thinks it's going to do, it really does follow the amount of sort of companies popping up there. And in France is another example where they is quite a lot of people in France trying to do things because the Macron government or, you know, they have made it a bit of a, a 
focal point that this is something that they want to get ahead of. So the laws have been drafted then to sort of acknowledge ownership through the use of blockchain technology. So their courts there will say, you know, if you have a smart contract and that smart contract ID is referenced by a company's constitution, which says, you know, the, the responsibilities and how this company is going to operate are going to be dictated by the, the you know, the protocols within the smart contract. France's courts will recognize that ownership. And you see that there is this sort of a push-pull. The more sort of the governments move, the more that people are willing to take risks. All right. So you assessed a lot of companies that are actually getting stuff done. Were there specific protocols that are top of mind that are achieving the desired end goals, what they're setting out to do? The biggest issue with this is compliance. And that is because you're dealing with money. So you need to ensure that sort of anti-money laundering and know your customer checks are done. If you are a platform or a token provider and you are providing the creation and the trading of tokens, you need to ensure that any person who is able to use your platform and deal with these tokens is allowed to. And so that is kind of a big fork in the road on how companies try and deal with it. I mean, some companies who are kind of quite forward looking, they say, we're going to actually create a protocol and a framework which allows the underlying asset owner, the people who want to tokenize their real estate, we're going to give them a lot of flexibility. They can choose who does their KYC. They can choose who their lawyers are. They can choose this. They, they will essentially allow the outsourcing to the, to the asset holders, trusted third parties. And, there, and that kind of requires quite a lot of forethought and how you're going to go and solve these problems. How do you deal with if, you know, you've got one person who's created an asset but used two different people? What happens if there's information in personal line? The others will be the white, it will do the KYC, it will do the AML, the, the source of truth for whether or not person A can buy token X and whether person B can sell token Y. In terms of trying to deal with that problem really sort of is a big separating point. And, and as me as a researcher, I really think that any sort of platform or tokenization solution you should come up with means that there's not one central source of truth. There's not one person or the token provider, the token platform provider is not the person who has the whitelist. I can say that I want my lawyer to do this and I want that person and I want to create a decentralized framework that all of that information is there, but it's not, there's no one gatekeeper. So that is kind of a first thing of thinking about it. The other thing I've noticed through, through my research is that the token providers or the token solution companies, which are asset class agnostic, are doing the best. So these are the companies who are not pitching themselves as real estate tokenization companies. These are companies who are just more focused with the idea of tokenization. So for example, there's a very good company in France which tokenized a real estate asset. I think it was the first in Europe. They're not a tokenization business. They are a shareholder record keeping blockchain company. They essentially keep all of the, the records and all the back of house and all of the sort of administrative things for companies on blockchain. And they were able to do this for company records and share certificates and that. So it was not a massive leap to go and do something for real estate. It's different when companies are saying, we're going to do this for real estate, we're going to do this for real estate. And they realize, oh, well, the easiest way to actually do it is to create a company off-chain, sell the assets into that company off-chain. What I've learned is that the real estate really sort of doesn't matter yet. It's really just about getting the tokenization right. And then that makes it smart from a business decision that it kind of leaves them open to being able to take other asset classes down the road, right? And maybe they specialize eventually in real estate or some other asset class, but they can 
choose to see which ones are really taking off that they can have market share on, right? Exactly. You were talking about all these platforms that are popping up. Now, when I think platforms, I think about the payment space. I've got a PayPal account. I've got a Venmo account. It drives me crazy that PayPal owns Venmo, and yet they're not interoperable. Will these tokenization platforms be interoperable? That's a big question for exchanges and investors. So currently, due to this compliance requirement, if I was to try and get involved in purchasing tokens backed by real estate, I would need to provide my date of birth, my national insurance, social security number, my all of my information a dozen times in order to get you know access to all of these things. Even when I purchased these assets on the specific token, I can by and large only sell to people who are also users of those platforms. The interoperability question is still a massive point of concern. The solution to it, I believe, right, is not really a technological one. It will involve sort of either consensus within the industry, say the traditional means of investing in real estate is Apple and your iPhone and the challenger is Android. It will take something like every Android provider agreeing that they're going to use the exact same micro USB charging thing. The only way we're going to take on Apple is by agreeing that this is what we're all going to do. Now, does that necessarily serve anyone's purpose? I mean, it serves it. I mean, it serves the collective group better, but you will need some sort of consensus about how underlying identification and compliance checks are done. Is there going to be a central source where, for example, Polymath, Securitize, Harbor, all of these, we all agree that this on-chain database of people's IDs and their permissions to hold things, we're all going to source from that. This is very much something that really is only going to be solved if people have a long-term view and think about the collective good and all sort of come to an agreement on essentially checking people's identities and, and their, their their rights to own different assets. And it's an interesting challenge, right? So it's not just that you can give these problem sets to engineering students, law school students, business schools to figure out. You actually need the industry players to all get along and cooperate on these. What are some other problems that need to be solved to make this scalable? The other problem that needs to be solved is with regards to asset identification. So, I mean, the people I've spoken to are currently involved in this industry. A lot of the asset identification occurs off-chain. So in order to sort of do this, you need to set up a special purpose vehicle, a, a company or a trust, depending on which jurisdiction you are, to actually hold the asset, right? Now, that is something that you need to do if I'm investing in real estate, whether or not blockchain is in the picture or not. So additionally, we've already sort of created the same step that needs to be done. One way that this can get around, and this really requires government movement, and they've started to look at this in places like uh, Georgia and Sweden, and you know, there's even talk in the United Kingdom, but nothing has really come about of that, is to move the, so the, the record keeping with the government, the titles office on chain, or so that it can be queried. Switzerland properties there, they have two identification numbers. There's the Gunderstruck, I'm probably uh, butchering the German, and the egret. And these are sort of identifiers which are mutable, they're very specific, they can be queried by people. And so they seem like perfect asset identification tools so that a smart contract which references or is supposed to be the digital twin of a specific property can literally reference this number. However, at the moment, it's just easier to set up a company and sell it into it and then you know, you kind of control it. So there's asset identification concerns in that sense. And it feels like in order for this to really 
become scalable in terms of retail investors, you need a, a lot of work. In terms of becoming scalable for institutional investors, it's not actually that far away. There was a transaction done last year where Societe Generale, a French bank, used blockchain technology to create um, a bond which was backed by a portfolio of real estate. And that was a large amount of money. Granted, it was a part of the project and they just sold it to a subsidiary of themselves. But nonetheless, the technology allowed a large institutional investor using blockchain technology to sort of purchase a portfolio backed by real estate. Well, we can hear the impediments of widespread adoption and the values if we get it right, using some of the frameworks that you've illustrated. Putting your Intuit hat on, how long will it take to evolve this? When, when do you think this will come to fruition? I think you will see within three years, I think you will see blockchain being a bigger part of sort of private, not publicly listed or traded sort of institutional investors. I think in places like private equity, it will be within three, three to five years, it will definitely be kind of a big sort of place in the recording of assets and that sort of stuff. I think for institutional retail investors, that's really up in the air. It's really hard to know. I mean, it could happen quite quickly. It really depends if the people, sort of government bodies, a big asset owner who's very interested in this technology, if they push it. But I think you will not be surprised if blockchain technology becomes a bigger and bigger role in sort of the back office, middle office stuff for large institutional investors. But whether or not it affects your or my wallet, um, I'm not sure, 100% sure about that. Well, where can we send our listeners to find out more about this? I would definitely recommend um, going to University College London Centre for Blockchain Technology. It is a fantastic place where you can find out where some of the far sharper minds than mine are thinking about these issues. And I've got a lot of research on uh, blockchain technology and specifically the practical applications to financial problems. What's next for you? You just completed your master's thesis. What's next for you? I have um, just finished my studies. I'm kind of taking a bit of time to think about what I next want to do. I, I definitely want to stay involved in blockchain and make sure that uh, I don't miss out on learning about this thing. It's hard to see this thing not going somewhere with the amount of people thinking about it. And I definitely don't want to be someone who's not thinking about it. And so, Simon, will you stay in academia or will you enter the world of industry in blockchain? I will most likely go back to the world of industry, but academia, I'm sure it'll be something that'll call later in life. Thank you, Simon, for talking with us today and for daring to chart in new territories with this nascent tech. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. It's interesting to hear how earlier adopters are thinking of steps ahead to mitigate risk. And it's such a pleasure hosting you on All About Blockchain. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions about this episode or any feedback for new episodes, please reach out to ubri at ripple.com. This wraps up our first season. We'll return in 2021 with a robust new set of conversations for you to learn what is possible with blockchain. See you next year. Thank you.